On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. And welcome to the About Books podcast and program. This is where we look at the latest publishing news and introduce you to someone in the publishing world to help us better understand how a book comes together. In this episode, we'll talk about the 150th anniversary of the Publishers Weekly publication, which many consider to be the Bible of publishing news. Michael Coffey, former co-editorial director of Publishers Weekly, will be our guest. But first, let's start with some publishing industry news. During last week's Supreme Court confirmation hearing of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas questioned Judge Jackson about the children's book, Anti-Racist Baby. Senator Cruz had used this as an example of critical race theory. The book was written by National Book Award-winning author Ibram Kendi, and it subsequently topped Amazon's bestseller list for children's books and was second for all books on the site. Mr. Kendi tweeted in response to the mention of his book, quote, You know Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson has impeccable credentials, and you know you're doing the work when Ted Cruz questions her about your books since he can't touch her record, end quote. Also in the news, in a recent national poll conducted by the American Library Association, 71% of Americans are against efforts to remove books from public libraries. 75% of Democrats and 70% of Republicans agree. The poll also found that 79% believe that libraries do a, quote, good job offering books with a variety of viewpoints. In other news, the J. Anthony Lucas Prizes, given to the, quote, best in American nonfiction writing, were announced recently. This year's winners include Andrea Elliott's Invisible Child and Surviving Catton by Jane Ragoiska. The annual prize is presented by the Columbia Journalism School and the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University. And according to NPD BookScan, Print book sales fell close to 13% for the week ending March 20th. And joining us now on About Books is Michael Coffey. Michael Coffey spent several years working for Publishers Weekly. Mr. Coffey, you retired, but they brought you back. What happened? Oh, they lured me back um, with this uh, very interesting project. Uh, I had been away for seven years and uh, doing my own work and uh, mostly writing. And um, I really loved Publishers Weekly. I was there for 26 years. And um, they were approaching their 150th anniversary. And the magazine has made a a custom of every 25 years doing an anniversary issue. Uh, So I was pleased to take on the project. It has gotten much larger than I I thought it would be. But it has been very uh, revelatory to dig down into the archives, which have all been digitized now. So... Uh, with one click of the mouse, you are back into 1872 or anywhere you want to be uh, in the run of a weekly magazine that has been 
positioned at the site, an interesting site of um, book commerce. Um, so that whatever is happening in the country or the world is eventually being reflected on by someone uh, who's publishing a book, whether it's culture, history, art, uh, education, technology, whatever it might be. And PW is standing there um, every week, um, analyzing it, evaluating it, and also giving lots of information about how to publish, how to sell books, how to stay in business. Well, you said the project has gotten a lot larger this 150th anniversary. How so? Well, my original concept was to really concentrate in the last 25 years, which has seen a cascade of changes uh, in the industry and not to dwell too much on the 19th century roots of the magazine or the 20th century tenure. Um, 97 was basically when Jeff Bezos uh, and Amazon had their IPO. J.K. Rowling had the first Harry Potter book come out that year and, and so on and many other things. And of course, Amazon has really caused lots of uh, uh, changes all the way across the board at, at every point in the distribution process or even the production process of a book, bringing it to a reader. But um, gradually the focus kind of widened. And um, so we have many pages on uh, the, the those earlier times. And uh, because the magazine itself has changed its look and it's quite interesting to, to look at it, the way promotion has changes, changed over the last century and a half. Uh, is enormously transformed. And um, we just started to revel early in the, uh, the, the recollections and uh, thought, let's make a real statement here that others, uh, you know, decades from now uh, can reflect upon. And it's kind of correcting the record or asserting the record of uh, what uh, Publishers Weekly's role has been in all of this. Michael Coffey, if somebody picked up the 1872 Weekly Trade Circular, which is where your roots at PW begin, would they recognize it? Um, yes, they would recognize it in the sense that um, they would recognize it as something from the 19th century because of the typography. Um, but they would see uh, an ad for James Fenimore Cooper's The Last of the Mohegans. They would see reports from the London bookselling scene. So you would hear about what the latest uh, was from George Eliot or Charles Dickens. And, you know, it's a recognizable world of uh, our inherited culture, um, which of course extends beyond 1872, but that's basically where we got going. And it was founded by a German born um, man with a, a passion for bibliography, a passion for order. And, um, the, the situation of publishing in the 19th century in America was um, quite disordered. Um, this was then a, you know, a country of uh, rivers and railroads and moving things around was expensive and slow. And so publishing tended to uh, be localized. There was publishing, big publishing in Hartford, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, and they served kind of a local market. Um, and, Frederick Leipold, the founder, um, wanted to make sure that every bookseller, every book agent across the country would know, you know, when uh, Gibson's Fall of Rome was coming in the New England area, when it was coming in uh, Philadelphia, and so on, and to have really reliable information. And so as soon as he began uh, putting out this, this circular uh, for publishers and stationers, it was uh, originally titled, uh, it, was, it was met warmly and um, it filled a, a real need. But it was a, a different world back then. 
But nonetheless, it was all about the same thing, which is getting books to people who can sell them to readers. Mr. Coffey, it seems to me, and I could be well mistaken in this, but it seems to me a lot of the large U.S. publishing houses really thrived and took off in the 1920s. Uh, yes, publishing um, did expand as uh, it became easier to move things around, for one thing. Um, it, it was uh, the economy was doing better. Um, but, you know, that all ended, uh, at least briefly, with the Depression. It was a really rough time. And you can you could read in the pages of PW the, the problems with uh, finances, with loans, banking, banks collapsing, and materials being short. So uh, every sort of uh, up and down of the economy uh, in the U.S. and uh, globally um, is reflected in one way or another in the pipeline of um, books. When you look back at that 150 years of Publishers Weekly history, what were two surprises that you found that you didn't know? Um, well, one surprise was that um, as I went through many of our yearly roundups, uh, because it was a, a custom that uh, in the January issue of one year, you would uh, recount what happened in the last year and talk to lots of people across uh, every part of the industry. There was a complaint that there were too many books, too many books to sell, too many books to store, uh, too many books to uh, make any money on. It was just considered to be flooded. And by the time, um, and, and it was in my time at Publishers Weekly, when Amazon came through and uh, sort of ebook selling and internet selling uh, became, well, a big threat, really, at least it was perceived as a big threat to the industry. One thing you never heard anymore was that there were too many books. Um, and so I think there was some kind of bottleneck in the industry, which had to do with basically how many books a books and mortar bookstore could, could have on its shelves. But once Amazon came, came along, they, it sort of made the availability, the, the store uh, infinite almost. I mean, Jeff Bezos wanted to have the everything store. And when it comes to books, he got that. The second surprise is somewhat related to that in that it was, there was a lot of doom saying at the time that uh, Amazon and Bezos was going to uh, ruin book selling, uh, ruin print, book print, um, just transform and own the industry in some way. And it never did, even though the Kindle came along and it was a rage for many years. Um, it's now uh, something that uh, I think has served to remind us that um, people really prefer print. You know, print is uh, outdoes ebooks now four to one. Um, Amazon is certainly healthy. They've moved on to being the everything for other categories. But publishing and book selling really, I think, found its, its strength and has uh, proven uh, that they could survive in this. Michael Coffey, has Publishers Weekly over the years opined about Amazon and its effect on publishing? We have reported on it. And uh, I think that's an important thing to assert about Publishers Weekly is that um, it, its, its original intention was to make business better for those interested in publishing books and not to um, get involved in any fights, not to take stands, just to report what was being said, and what was problematic, 
and to try to quantify it. So you can certainly read in Publishers Weekly how many independent bookstores went out of business in the early part of the 21st century. Um, that's there. It's, it was a problem. Uh, but you will also find uh, how bookstores have thrived and broadening the, what you can find in a, in a typical good independent bookstore. So, uh, you know, and there's always occasions when um, we are kind of expected to weigh in editorially on something that has happened, but it's, it's very rare that we do it. Um, when the fatwa was placed on Salman Rushdie and there were death threats to Viking, which had published the book here and threats uh, wherever the book was published around the world, some of those threats actually fulfilled it turns out. Um, we had an editorial kind of supporting the people who worked at Viking, supporting Salman Rushdie, supporting the right of, um, of a book to be in a bookstore. And I think the, um, the industry was, was happy to hear us weigh in. And there have been other times um, where just the reporting can be seen as reporting on dissent, say. Um, the, I was surprised to find, this is another surprise, uh, there was a I think it was a National Book Award in New York City in 1967, which became about three days about the Vietnam War. And it seemed that the people who were in publishing at that time uh, and who were speaking uh, certainly thought the war was getting out of hand and probably we should get out of Vietnam. Michael Coffey, there is something called the Publishers Weekly Starred Review. Why is that so coveted? Well, we, we publish 9,000 reviews uh, a year. And um, there's, we wanted to have some way to distinguish really exceptional um, books that, at least in our reviewers' opinion. And the red star seemed to uh, be something that jumped off the page to people. Um, we also occasionally would box a review with a star. And you know, this is reserved for books that we think are a really uh, uh, unusual literary merit with commercial appeal. So you might see Amy Tan's Joy Luck Club. I think that was the first uh, such review that we distinguished that way. Um, or Cormac McCarthy's um, All the Pretty Horses or uh, Oscar Huelos's uh, Mambo King's Play Songs of Love. Books like that. And it makes a difference. Um, it helps the publisher sort of distinguish the book uh, by saying, you know, a PW starred review, it's like later on, if, if it's a Publishers Weekly bestseller, they will say so. Or if it's a New York Times bestseller, obviously they will say so. Something to uh, distinguish the book out there in the sea of other books. 9,000 reviews a year. Do you ever write them? And what makes a good review in your view? Yes, I've written hundreds of reviews in PW over the years. Um, but we have many people who've written many more. Um, and what makes a good review is uh, it shouldn't be too long, uh, for one thing. And you do learn writing book reviews that it's harder to write short than long. And, you know, it should have a way of, uh, you know, summarizing the plot or the scope of the nonfiction book's attempts to, uh, to deal with a certain issue. Uh, there should be some background reading so that you know what you're talking about and have, a, have an appropriate context for it. Often reading, writing a review, say, of a Cormac McCarthy book, as I, as I once did, um, I read all of Cormac McCarthy to that point, um, realizing it was an important book and I better know 
um, everything in his oeuvre. So a book, book review really has to be informed, um, descriptive, and offer at least some sort of evaluative close. Well, let's look at the last 25 years, as you mentioned, Publishers Weekly often looks back every 25 years and, and reports. This has been a pretty momentous 25 years. Book Expo, the national uh, trade show for publishers, uh, fell away. Amazon came along, like you said. Everything has gone digital. Is Publishers Weekly even published in paper form anymore? Oh, yes. Um, we are still in paper form, and uh, I think we always will be if we could have survived that. Um, many trade magazines in, in various um, uh, industries did not make it. Um, they did either not make it lasting in print or they're completely gone. Um, we, uh, we, but we have like at least 12 different news, e-newsletters. We have six podcasts, I think. Um, and everything uh, in a weekly issue goes up on a Saturday night in digital format. So um, I think many of our readers uh, just read us online. Um, and um, the people who see us in print are prob probably much, much fewer. It used to be um, before the digital world, you know, Random House might have a 50 subscriptions and they would land on their, their desks uh, on a Tuesday morning and, um, and it would do so every Tuesday. Now I think it's, it's much different, but still I would have to say that the reach of Publishers Weekly is vastly exponentially uh, expanded. And who is your audience, Mr. Coffey, besides the industry? Do you have people who are interested in books subscribing as well? Oh, indeed, yes. There are a lot of um, just individuals who subscribe um, or maybe um, just see some of our newsletters. Um, you, if uh, someone wants to enter the children's book publishing world, uh, book writing world, uh, they should be looking at uh, in our, our children's uh, twice weekly newsletter and so on. There are things in, in comics and um, religion newsletters and so on. So, uh, but they're sort of meat and potatoes of, of what we deliver to the, the, the people that uh, this magazine is really written for uh, are the booksellers, the editors, the publishers, the agents, um, and the international market for the most part. Um, I mean, some writers also, you know, would uh, subscribe to it. But it's really still a trade magazine. And, um, you know, Frederick Leopold's original idea um, was that this should be educational to the, the business world of publishing. Michael Coffey, another trend in the last 25 years has been a consolidation of the publishing industry. Are there enough and enough variety of publishers in your view out there today? I would say so, yes. I think there is a tremendous variety of publishers out there. And though there has been a lot of consolidation, certainly, um, we're heading, we were at the big six for a while, then it's the big five, and it may, once the Justice Department decides, it may be, end up being the big four. But 30 years ago, um, there were certainly lots of small little presses, thanks to the desktop revolution, which uh, allowed people to produce books more cheaply at home. Um, but or you know in a, in a small office environment but they had lots of problems lots of lots of hurdles as a small publisher 
uh, distribution being the main one. That's not so much the case anymore. Um, if you can get your book uh, evaluated, uh, properly published, printed, um, you can find distribution. You can find uh, a market for it. Um, the, the internet has really made it easier to find the people that uh, would like what you're doing and to hold on to them. So I'd say that the, uh, you know, others may disagree, but I think the, the health of independent publishing is quite strong. And um, the, the access to the market, um, it couldn't be uh, better than it is right now. It's never been better than it is right now. And um, Amazon had something to do with that. Um, but I think as well, the tremendously robust distribution there, there Ingram down in Nashville has, is a huge distribution uh, center. Um, and they'll also, you know, print books on demand for, for small publishers who, you know, can do 10 at a time, um, which really lessens, you know, capital investment you have to put behind a book uh, to get it out there, which used to be the biggest problem you would face. Like you need 50,000 copies to make it, make a stand at Barnes and Noble, but that's a lot of money. You got to pay the printer first before the book sells. So it, it's quite, it was quite a challenge. Michael, so I'd, I'm I'd sorry, say the, the, no, go ahead and finish. I, I do say the, the overall ecosystem uh, seems to me um, pretty healthy with lots of challenges, of course. Well, Michael Coffey, I often use the figure that there are 800,000 curated, edited books published a year. Can you confirm that general number or correct it? I would say it's low. Um, especially if you consider uh, all of the self-publishing that is now really happening um, and has been happening for a while and Publishers Weekly about six or seven years ago or longer um, got involved in uh, acknowledging that th this was a, a growing field and, and a serious field with writers and, uh, you know, writers slash publishers who should be taken seriously. So uh, self-publishing is really added, I think, to the amount of books out there. But as I said, people aren't complaining anymore. Um, and there have been lots of self-publishing successes. Uh, it's, you know, when there are a million books a year coming out, it's, it's difficult to, you know, make yours, uh, you know, pay the rent. Um, but people like to be in the game and uh, they like to be able to have their book available. And uh, I think that's never been uh, so easily done as it is now. Well, you spent 26 years at Publishers Weekly. What were some of your yeah. jobs? Well, I came in as managing editor in 1988. Um, and uh, I had been editing a magazine called Small Press Magazine. I was editor-in-chief. I kind of did most everything there. Um, and then it, it turned out the, the managing editor at Publishers Weekly was leaving. So I got that job. I became editorial direct, co-editorial director in 2010 when um, George Slowick, uh, our current uh, owner and president, um, uh, bought the magazine, uh, which was, you know, in, in rough straits because it was owned by a much, much huger company that uh, decided trade publishing was no longer what it wanted to do, although it had about 50 trade magazines. Um, so uh, in a way, this is a great celebration, this 150th anniversary issue, because PW against uh, all those odds of, you know, being you know, with the wrong parent company at, at that time for the, the conditions of the market. And then, you know, being in the midst of uh, an economic downturn, which, you know, started in 2008 
and the on sort of slot of Amazon and so on, um, we managed to survive and uh, and to thrive. So I, I I don't think this is a, this is the last anniversary issue we will be doing. And Michael Coffey is the guest editor of Publishers Weekly's 150th edition, which will be out in mid-April. Mr. Coffey, thank you for spending some time with us on About Books. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for your interest. And this is About Books, Book TV's program and podcast, which looks at the latest publishing news and nonfiction books. And here's a look at some nonfiction books being published this week. San Jose State University professor Roberto Gonzalez offers his thoughts on how technology and automation are changing military conflict. His new book is titled War Virtually. In Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System, Attorney and Innocence Project Director of Strategic Litigation M. Chris Fabricant explores some flaws in forensic science and how it could affect the outcome of judicial cases. And journalist Mark Fullman reports on the use of behavioral threat assessment to identify and stop potential mass shooters. His book is called Trigger Points. Also being published this week in Torn Apart, University of Pennsylvania Sociology and Law Professor Dorothy Roberts argues that the U.S. child welfare system is systemically racist and needs reform. And military historian Richard Overy looks at World War II in his latest book, Blood and Ruins. Well, this weekend on our monthly call-in program, In-Depth, author and professor Noam Chomsky rejoins us to talk and take calls about capitalism, U.S. foreign policy, and social change. We recently covered a book program with Professor Chomsky. Here's a portion. Major poll just came out from Pew Research, major polling agency, in which they asked people, they gave people a choice of 15 serious problems, asked them to rank them in terms of urgency, divided by Republicans and Democrats. Among Republicans, the very last one at the bottom was global warming. At the top was illegal immigrants, and uh, the, uh, the debt. The debt, incidentally, became a problem last November 4th. Uh, up until then, the debt was fine. Republicans were creating it to enrich very rich people, so it was no problem. November 4th, Biden took it over, might use it to help others, poor people, terrible, major problem. It's not that the people who said that actually believe it, it's that's what they hear in the bubble in which they're contained. You listen to the Murdoch TV station, Fox News, you read the Murdoch press, that's what you hear. And when you're stuck in that bubble, that's what you believe. So the real problems are illegal immigrants, terrible problem. Uh, the debt suddenly became a problem. And at the bottom of the list is destroying the environment in which life can be sustained. All of these are signs of the collapse, not only of the arena for rational discourse, but just general social collapse. And that was Noam Chomsky, who is our guest on this weekend's In-Depth program. Now, if you missed any parts of this program, 
visit our website, booktv.org. Click on the In-Depth tab at the top of the page, and you can watch it in its entirety. And finally, here's a look at some current nonfiction best-selling books, according to the Harvard Bookstore in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Topping the list is Atomic Habits. This is James Clear's advice on breaking bad habits and forming good ones. After that is Michelle Zahner's memoir, Crying in H-Mart. This book has been on bestseller lists for months. And then it's 4,000 Weeks, Oliver Berkman's Guide to Time and Time Management. And that's followed by Ryan Norse's Exploration of Science and Technology Through the Lens of Comic Book Villainy. His book, How to Take Over the World. And wrapping up our look at Harvard Bookstore's best-selling nonfiction books, Lessons from the Edge. This is former United States Ambassador to Ukraine Marie Yovanovitch's reflections on her career, U.S.-Russia relations, and her congressional testimony during the first impeachment hearings of former President Donald Trump. Now, Ms. Yovanovitch recently appeared on Book TV's Afterwards program, and you can watch that program along with all other episodes online at booktv.org. Simply click on the Afterwards tab at the top of the page. And that's a look at this week's publishing news and the latest nonfiction books. Thanks for joining us. About Books is available as a podcast on C-SPAN's app, C-SPAN Now, or wherever you get your podcasts.